Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Samantha Thomas and today we're talking with Dr. Richard Davidson, Professor of Neuroscience at the University of Wisconsin and Director of the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds. The center's name itself suggests that Davidson's group is doing something different by studying positive mental states instead of the conventional approach of describing pathological ones. His work has been heavily influenced by the Dalai Lama, who encourages scientific study of positive qualities. In this conversation, we'll talk about this connection with the Dalai Lama, the resulting work studying the minds of meditating monks, and what we know about the plasticity of the human mind. So stay tuned for that and more here on the Grok Science Show. At the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds, Dr. Richard Davidson studies positive qualities such as forgiveness, compassion, mindfulness, and creativity. I asked him to describe the broad goals of the center and tell us about some of the current work he's doing. The Center for Investigating Healthy Minds was created in 2009, and there are uh, three major prongs to the center. One is basic research, and that is um, uh, research in the laboratory uh, from a neuroscientific perspective where we investigate uh, the detailed um, underlying biology of uh, healthy qualities of mind and their um, behavioral manifestations. Uh, we uh, study qualities like well-being and compassion and things of that sort. Uh, and we're interested in how the brain and the body changes in response to practices that are designed to cultivate these qualities. So uh, that um, uh, uh, is a very large fraction of what we do, and that constitutes our basic research program, and there are probably, uh, at any given time, somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to 10 different studies going on uh, on the basic research side, and it ranges from looking at changes in the brain to uh, looking at uh, gene expression, uh, looking at um, the interaction of changes in the brain with uh, uh, certain changes in systemic bodily processes in the immune and endocrine systems and so on. <clears throat> so uh, that's one prong. The second prong is what we call translational research, and the way we think about translational research is research that we do in real-world contexts. Um, so this is taking insights that we've gleaned from the laboratory and bringing them out into the real world in uh, ways that potentially could be of benefit to people, uh, but also uh, in the context of uh, serious um, scientific research where we can simultaneously collect data on their efficacy. Uh, and in that uh, domain, we're doing work, uh, a lot of work with children in various contexts, beginning with preschool children. Uh, we have developed what we call a kindness curriculum, which uh, is a curriculum that is designed to cultivate kindness and mindfulness in um, preschool and kindergarten kids. Uh, and um, we have implemented this curriculum in the um, public schools, and we're evaluating it in the context of 
serious randomized controlled trials where we um, randomized children by classroom and looked at the impact of this intervention on a variety of outcome measures, including um, social and emotional behavior, um, uh, self-control, uh, attention, and um, uh, measures of social behavior as well as grades. Uh, so that's um, uh, one major component of our translation research. As demonstrated by the kindness curriculum, Dr. Davidson's work pushes advances in understanding of neuroscience to translational applications. But the brain's plasticity is another theme of Davidson's work, and accordingly, he works with individuals of all ages. We also are doing work with older kids in different contexts. One project that we're currently involved with is one funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where we've developed video games uh, for middle school kids. One game that's designed to cultivate mindfulness and another game designed to cultivate empathy and kindness and pro-social behavior. And we're, um, we're doing a randomized controlled trial now, systematically evaluating the impact of these games on children's behavior, uh, on their brain function, uh, and so forth. Um, in the near future, uh, actually in a few weeks, we'll be starting our, um, an effort that's going to be a new uh, avenue of translation research, and that will be working with people in the workplace, in corporate settings, in large organizations. And we're developing um, simple, short practices that can be deployed every day in the workplace, meant to be done at work. Uh, and they are designed to be sprinkled throughout the day, and we're accompanying that with um, online assessment tools that can be used by um, the individuals themselves to get feedback on the impact of these practices, as well as provide data to us on uh, their efficacy. So those are some of the translational research endeavors in which we're engaged. And the third prong of our center is dissemination, simply disseminating these ideas to the public uh, and helping to produce a global shift in awareness. And uh, uh, the simple message that we're trying to convey uh, is that well-being is something that can be learned. These are just a few of the projects that Davidson's team is working on. Perhaps the project that made the biggest splash was his work studying the minds of meditating Buddhist monks. This research idea came out of a conversation with the Dalai Lama, who has been influencing Dr. Davidson's work for over 20 years. I asked Dr. Davidson to tell us how this collaboration began and how the partnership shapes his work. Well, I first met His Holiness in 1992, and uh, uh, it was a very important meeting for me. He really uh, challenged me in that meeting and said that we're using the tools of modern neuroscience to investigate qualities like anxiety and depression and fear. Why can't we use those same tools to study kindness and compassion? Uh, and uh, there really wasn't a good answer for that. Uh, and um, uh, I had had an interest in meditation that preceded my meeting the Dalai Lama, but he, uh, but I really very much kept it under the radar, and he encouraged me to come out of the closet, which I did. 
uh, and um, be much more vocal about my interest in this area. Um, and he has played an enormously important role. It's, it's, it's really difficult to overestimate his contribution. I see him these days four or five times a year, and um, he has been uh, uh, an enormous inspiration and uh, catalyst for a lot of this work. Surprised that the Dalai Lama has such a strong interest in science? Don't be. The Buddhist tradition has historically been open to science, and the partnership between Wisconsin and Tibet is an embodiment of that harmony. I asked Dr. Davidson to tell us about some of the findings from studying long-term practitioners of contemplative traditions. Well, I would say that there are a few um, key findings that are worth noting. Um, but also, I should preface it by saying that this work is still very much in its infancy, and although uh, it's generated a lot of excitement, uh, uh, it's important not to overestimate the um, uh, the progress that we've made. Uh, we're, we've really taken a, a baby step. Um, but what we have found is that uh, during certain kinds of meditation, and I should also say that this work has underscored the importance of differentiating among different types of meditation. Not all meditation is the same, and there are literally hundreds of practices that have been described in the traditional texts. Uh, and so uh, it's very important to be very clear about what practices one is talking about. Uh, there are certain practices that um, involve qualities of open awareness or open presence, as we called it, or open monitoring, where uh, the field of awareness is broad, uh, attention is not restricted to any single object, uh, and there is a heightened awareness um, and alertness of whatever may be um, floating in and out of the mind. Uh, and during periods of that sort, there is the expression of uh, gamma oscillations in the electrical activity of the brain. These are very fast-frequency oscillations, and they become highly synchronized among different regions of the brain. And um, this kind of pattern is one that has been linked in prior research with uh, synaptic plasticity uh, and uh, also with... Um, the binding of different elements of a percept, of a complex percept together. Uh, and the fact that we see this um, dramatically enhanced uh, for um, periods of time that have never been observed before in the human brain uh, is quite interesting and may be a kind of neural echo of the panoramic awareness that long-term practitioners report during uh, this kind of meditation. Uh, the second thing that we've observed uh, is a pattern that we've observed um, where we have probed practitioners um, uh, using certain kinds of highly emotional stimuli, and one that we've used that's particularly helpful in this regard is physical pain um, because it's a very compelling stimulus, and, and it's very real. It's uh, ecologically valid, so to speak. Uh, we all have experienced physical pain, and we all know what it's like. Uh, and one of the really interesting things <coughs> that we've observed is this. Uh, if we present a practitioner with a cue that tells them that they're about to experience a very strong physical pain 
in 10 seconds, for example, um, when you give that cue to uh, an untrained person, uh, what you see is that regions in the brain that are activated during actual pain become activated to an innocuous cue. Um, uh, it's as if the pain starts before the pain is actually, before the noxious stimulus is actually delivered. And in long-term meditation practitioners, what we see is very, very little change until the stimulus is actually applied. Uh, and then what we see is after the stimulus terminates, there's a very, very rapid recovery, uh, whereas in untrained individuals, there's a kind of reverberation, uh, which uh, reflects the negative emotions that are continuing to linger. Uh, and so this quality of really being in the present moment, not showing these anticipatory responses and showing a very rapid recovery is really uh, a kind of a neural echo of being in the present moment, uh, which I think is um, particularly uh, important and captures uh, an essential ingredient of the kinds of changes that these practices can promote. Although these practitioners have had years of intense training, mental health professionals tell us that anybody can benefit from developing a meditation practice. This claim is supported by one of the themes of Dr. Davidson's work, brain plasticity. Our minds are malleable, and we can cultivate positive qualities throughout life. You know, nobody really knows um, what is immutable and what is not immutable. Uh, we do know that... Um, <clears throat> uh, that as a consequence of environmental experiences and training, uh, a person's um, gene expression can actually be altered so that uh, you may have a genetic propensity to be dysphoric, um, but um, the extent to which the genes that are involved in that characteristic are expressed is something highly dependent upon one's environment and one's learning history and one's um, experiences. Uh, and so even though you have a genetic propensity that points you in a certain direction, that doesn't mean that it will necessarily be expressed. Uh, and uh, so I think that any scientist who's actually rigorously honest will say that she or he does not know what the limits of plasticity are because they haven't been tested. There are wonderful anecdotal examples of uh, individuals who have practice these kinds of practices for a very, very long period of time uh, and whose demeanor is um, uh, quite uh, positive and, um, uh, and infectious in their, in their uh, healthy positivity. And uh, uh, one great exemplar of that is the Dalai Lama. Work in neuroscience sometimes bumps up against faith and philosophy in interesting ways. I was curious whether Dr. Davidson felt this, given his extensive work with people of the Buddhist tradition. I am uh, a scientist, uh, first and foremost. Uh, it's also the case that um, the contemplative tradition that we've most uh, um, seriously investigated comes from Buddhism, and Buddhism uh, has a very strong commitment to uh, empirical observation. Uh, 
uh, the Buddha himself in a very famous sutra said, don't believe anything I say. Go out and practice, and if you derive benefit, then uh, then you should talk about it. But uh, do it on the basis of your own experience, not on the basis of faith. Uh, and so uh, uh, there's a very clear statement to that effect in that tradition. And uh, it's one of the reasons, I think, that scientists in general have found it easy to collaborate with Buddhists. And it's also a non-theistic religion, so there's no... Uh, there's no element of the belief in some higher power or being. It seemed possible to me that knowledge of the biology behind phenomena that have historically been considered mysteries of the brain might make these experiences more mundane. I asked Dr. Davidson whether this was the case for him. I would say it, it does just the opposite. It, does it? it okay, really, good. Um, uh, it's... Uh, uh, you know, I do sometimes reflect on the fact that when I'm experiencing certain things uh, uh, based on what I know as a scientist, it's likely that certain changes are occurring in my brain. And um, uh, and that just adds to the experience, enriches it. And in fact, the Dalai Lama has told me that when he meditates each day, he reflects on the fact that based upon the research that I've done and that others have done, he he recognizes that he's changing his brain in the process, and that just inspires him. Um, so uh, really precisely the antithesis. It really expands and enriches rather than uh, contracts the experience. Advances in brain imaging technology have been met with excitement from a number of professions. Potential applications include monitoring therapies for effectiveness and improved resolution of the anatomical or functional differences between cases and controls. Dr. Davidson is one of the leading figures in brain imaging, and I was curious where he saw the future of the technology headed. Well, with regard to imaging technology, and I'll also comment on my feedback, uh, uh, there's huge um, uh opportunities for future research and future discovery. Um, the kinds of imaging tools that we have today in 10 years from now are going to look um, like um, very crude, blunt instruments. Uh, one of the most exciting areas uh, uh, is imaging the connectivity of the brain, and uh, there are new techniques that are being developed to image these connections, and these connections are highly dynamic. Uh, we're discovering using these kinds of imaging tools, uh, for example, that these connections can, uh, physical connections can uh, change within the course of about an hour uh, that are measurable. So the idea that the brain is structurally fixed is ridiculous. Uh, uh, it just uh, uh, it just is constantly changing very dynamically structurally, not just functionally. Uh, and uh, and so there's a huge amount to be discovered. It's also the case that one of the um, great um, lacuna in our methodology is being able to image uh, alterations in gene expression in the brain. You cannot look at gene expression in the brain in humans uh, because it, it can only be done using very invasive procedures. And so our knowledge of that has been restricted to animals. Um, uh, and uh, there is some hope that uh, over the next uh, decade or so, 
uh, non-invasive tools will be developed to actually image changes in gene expression in the human brain, and that's going to be revolutionary. Uh, it's going to totally change everything, uh, and it's difficult to overestimate the importance of that, uh, and it's going to be a game-changer. Um, uh, I think that there, there'll be a lot to look forward to. With that, we'll wrap up our interview with University of Wisconsin professor Richard Davidson. He also has a book titled The Emotional Life of the Brain, and in it, he describes variability in emotional composition between individuals and the shifts in brain circuitry corresponding to each emotional style. Again, his name is Dr. Richard Davidson, and the book is called The Emotional Life of the Brain. So that's all for today. For more from us, you can find us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, or visit our blog at grax.net. For Charles Lee and Franklin, I'm Samantha Thomas. Until next time, practice those positive qualities, be mindful and compassionate, and as always, keep on grokking.